Hi, and welcome to episode 16 of the Connect podcast. I'm Steven Onzo, producer of the Connect podcast, and today I'm pleased to present an interview recorded in December 2017 with Lacey Trayball and Daniel Gandhi, director of autonomous vehicles at Nextdroid. In part one of this two-part series, we'll talk about the challenges of developing an autonomous vehicle for a busy roadway and learn why Nextdroid chose Connect DDS as the connectivity framework for its autonomous systems. Other topics we'll cover include combining traditional machine learning and AI using deep learning, as well as Dan's thoughts on what the future will look like for autonomous vehicles. We hope you enjoy this episode. I am the director of our self-driving car program. Right now, the company is basically focused on maritime and self-driving car. Um, So I lead projects in the self-driving car space. Do you like it? I do. It's an opportunity to actually contribute to the space and to take my background and try to apply it to this problem that, you know, everybody's trying to work on right now. So, And it's a messy, complex problem. Yes. Which means it's right up your alley. It's one of your favorite <laughs> problems. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little about Nextdroid, because if you go online and you Google Nextdroid Robotics, you find next to nothing (laughs) about the company (laughs) with the exception of a Gizmodo article and a few other, some job postings, which I take to mean that you guys are hiring. We are definitely hiring. Engineers, it looked like. Yes. Cool. We have an office in Boston. We have an office in Pittsburgh. Okay. Yeah. I think one of the things I saw was for engineers at that one. Cool. So if you had to explain what Nextroid Robotics does, how would you do that? So I'll take a step back for a second to sort of set the stage for Nextroid. Okay. If you look at computing today, when, you know, if we're talking 30 years ago, computers were an industry. They were their own thing. Now we don't really talk about it in that sense because computers have become pervasive. They're just part of every industry. That's happening with robotics. That's happening with automation. It's going to start impacting every industry, and we're already starting to see that. When being a large player in any one of these industries, this means that you now have to adapt. You may have established a way of operating, a way of developing and engineering for your domain over the course of a long period of time. And and now suddenly your foundation is becoming a little less stable. What we're doing is we're essentially creating partnerships with large organizations to help bring state-of-the-art robotics and automation technology into their sphere we can act as the the tip of their spear into this realm. We work with them on what is and isn't possible, what their roadmap should be. We will execute on projects that are the beginnings of work in that space for their next generation work. We'll work with their teams to transition some of that technology back to them and help them build up teams in that space so they can essentially establish themselves in a, a, a new area. So they can grow organically by leveraging where you guys are the experts instead of having to overnight try and become an expert in a field that they weren't in before. Exactly. And it comes back to also if I were trying to build a team, some sense I already need to have expertise in a domain right. to know who to hire. Um, or to know what to do. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. so we can offload a lot of those tasks. Massive risk reduction. Right. Okay, so you guys work with these larger established companies. Yes. And you go in there and kind of become 
at first you are their robotics team, it sounds like, and then you work with them to transition that back to them. Correct. So that successful engagement with these people would mean that at the end, they have their team up and running, they're functioning, they can hire and they can achieve whatever it is they were trying to achieve with us. And and you guys can leave knowing they're good to go. Right. And then sometimes that doesn't mean leaving. Sometimes that means that we continue to stay on the edge of what they're doing. Because we can be small and nimble. We can stay up to date on the research. Um, mm-hmm. And so I would say our emphasis is also that we're taking state-of-the-art technology and applying it to production deployment. We're talking about applying at scale. We're not talking about some academic project or some some science experiment. The work that we do has the intent of being baked into production pipelines for these major organizations. So they might give us something that's very early and very immature and say, this is something more researchy and we'll, we'll give them results based on what we're able to do with it. But we, at the same time, we could have projects that you know, already have dates for when they would like to launch them. And being able to say that you have sufficient domain expertise in these realms to know that a production deployment of something is possible, what the appropriate scope of it should be, um, so you're not going to create something that's an unsolvable problem at some point. I think I should also say that our initial push is to have partners in the maritime industry and in the automotive industry as being two areas that not only are um, sort of ripe for innovation, but ones where our founders have deep domain experience. So we're building out in those industries and then also looking at, you know, expanding that to other industries. So then you just mentioned the underwater. So you guys are working with people who build underwater vehicles? That's correct. And then on the vehicle side, I guess you're allowed to say that. What's the standard line? (laughs) Um, We have partnership with one of the top players in the automotive industry. Cool. And it's similar to the partnerships that you described before. So that type of thing. Awesome. If you look at the the autonomous vehicle industry as it exists right now, it can basically be broken into two camps. You have companies that are trying to develop fleets, so expensive vehicles that are always going to be owned by a major corporation that have expensive sensor sets and are going to have engineers and technicians on hand to keep them operational. And then you have the more traditional retail consumer channel. Right. This is where the traditional OEMs and suppliers have generally lived and how they move towards autonomy. The breakdown is one where on the retail side, ultimately the technology is going to be deployed at a far wider scale than what you'd have from a fleet perspective. You're going to put it in the hands of consumers that have no education about the technology <laughs> and it needs to be serviced and maintained by dealerships that also have limited training in the technology, all while you know operating in with far more exposure, far less controlled situations than you would normally. So on the fleet side, you can go and deploy a huge range of expensive, large-scale computation. You can deploy a wider range of sensors that have, I, w- I don't want to say limitless cost, but in comparison to the retail channel, like limitless cost, and you can confine where they operate. You can say we're going to operate in them certain circumstances. And the way that all of them have been operating thus far has been with safety drivers. I think one company has tried taking a safety driver out once, and that was extremely recently. And that I don't know that anybody's ready to say that we're going to start having fare-based service without any driver in the driver's seat. On 
this side, on the, the retail side, we're basically just having a steady march towards automation. Any technology that you can imagine being an automotive, be it autonomous vehicles or not, mm-hmm. when you talk about scale, so the U.S. auto sales market is more than 15 million cars a year. If we say that with new technology deployment, less than 1% will have new technology, but even then you could easily have 100,000 units being sold in a year with, with new technology. Those cars will get driven conservatively 10,000 miles yeah. in a year. So you're looking at just your first batch having exposure to a billion miles of circumstances that, you know, how would you have tested for? Uh, you say that the average age of a car in the U.S. is now above 10 years. Uh, is it really? I think we're at like 12 years or something like that. So now we start stacking. We say 10 years from now, you're going to be accruing 10 billion miles a year of drive exposure to a technology that's still only making up like half a percent, two thirds of a percent right. of the total sales market. When you look at what anybody has really achieved in terms of AV testing, I think the largest, which is over several years, is in the 4 million mile range if I'm up to date. So we're talking about several orders of magnitude difference in terms of what you can test and what you... Some of the Waymo stuff. Yeah. I vaguely remember seeing a number close to that in the last articles that I looked at. They're way ahead right? in terms of the miles because every project that Alphabet has, they can use this stuff for. Like, we need to survey streets. Well, we can also strap that sensor on here and take some pictures. It's like, exactly. I mean, they are optimized, yeah, to get more data. And that's a hard thing to achieve. Yes. And so when you're looking at that retail channel, you have to be trying to stack the deck as much in your favor as possible. Everything needs to be scalable and you have to have some sense of security and safety ingrained in it that is going to say that when I put this in the wild, when it's completely out of my control, it's going to behave in a predictable manner. It's going to you know, operate with some definable bounds of when it's going to have error and when it's going to have its failings and that when it fails, it's going to degrade gracefully in a way that doesn't jeopardize people's lives. And so when you have to operate at that kind of scale, you're looking for any sort of technology that you can bake in that will give you a leg up. Our projects are structured such that, you know, from the design of algorithms and the the system and the way that the system integrates into the vehicle are specifically always aware of that challenge. If it means that we confine scope of a system so that it may only operate in certain regimes, but when it operates, it's gonna operate in a way that's not gonna jeopardize people's lives. That has to be a foundational philosophy in the way that you build out a system. Yeah, you can't bake that in after the fact. Exactly. And so we still have to deal with a lot of the problems that you would face in the the sort of fleet side where you have a lot of computation, you're going to have to have more computation than automotive is used to, to solve these problems. And as you start to do that, and you start to say, uh, systems have variants and things have to, software needs to be modular, they have to be able to be reused. You want some middleware that has the flexibility to allow me to have a production system where I can deploy it and have some confidence that it will meet safety standards and and make a safety case for an automotive partner to put it into the field while also allowing me to develop, allowing me to have flexibility in terms of 
if I'm scaling a project up and I add more computation and that computation is in parallel, I want to make sure that I have a way to push computation as needed across different modules. And so having something that is very hard-coded to a very specific platform, a platform which may be changing out from under you as the industry is evolving. Not maybe, will. Will. Uh, <laughs> it is uh, just going to set you up for failure. So you could see that a lot of people in the robotics industry, they'll use something like ROS. But ROS, it's designed as a research platform. It's not designed around having a production scale deployment of something. And so from that standpoint, DDS made sense. And what's more is when you're looking at selling to consumers and moving through these types of channels, anything that is purely open source, where there's no responsible party, nobody who's going to address issues, nobody's going to guarantee maintenance, nobody is just not tractable. So we needed to have a DDS implementation from a, a company that was going to then be able to back that for the time of deployment, which could be substantial. And in terms of just long-term stability and support of something, a typical automotive development cycle is six it years. Is it? it is. Um, if you look at how... From research to... Well, not necessarily for research, but if you look at how often do I get a, a brand new version of a car, there's, it's something like around six years. And somewhere in the middle, you'll get like a, a refresh of some form where they'll change some of the cosmetics and add a few features and tweak things. So if you imagine that somewhere along that six-year period, I took a snapshot and said, this is what we're going to develop to. I'm going to deploy that. And so I, it's now marching along <laughs> and it has to go through all of its uh, conclusion of development. It has to go through all of its validation stages and its calibration stages, its production line stand-up, its deployment, and, and then it ends up in a retail channel. And now that car drives around for 12 years I, you know, a company might keep making some, they'll try to hold something as long as they can. Obviously, they don't want to reinvent the wheel. So they might keep systems based on that infrastructure for decades. You need to have something that is not going to be, I mean, Ross is 10 years old right now. Yeah. Um, and obviously, it started with small beginnings. You need to have something that is going to inspire confidence from an automotive player's perspective that either it's going to be supported by its makers or that somebody's going to be able to pick it up and own it and then keep it alive for a period of time. So an actual robust product. Right. As opposed to an open source community contributed build right. of something. It just doesn't yes. have the same level or even honestly of the testing and stuff they go through, all the validation things. And right. I mean, there's they're treated very differently. I mean, you can work with open source things. It's just a matter of like, a company might take an open source project and, and bring, bring it in. And bring their own thing, yeah. Right. And then they'll like really, you know, test and validate that snapshot and essentially they'll be forked off the yeah. off the rest of the world and and then they'll they'll take ownership of it. But mm -hmm. that's that's its own cost to go and maintain and do all that with. Right. Yeah. And having to have the expertise on hand for that specific aspect all yeah. the time. So much nicer if a company can do it instead. Right. Yeah. So you guys realized you needed middleware and you went off and researched what fits best here. Yes. So how'd that go? Basically, we, we had the option of building up ourselves in some homegrown fashion, which is kind of where you start. But that didn't really have, uh, one, it, being a small company, it's a lot of overhead for you to be developing your own infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and then 
Couple that with a pathway to eventually having safety certifications and security certifications and every other certification that you would need to get this out someplace. It, it just adds more overhead to getting something into production. Ross was something that we had earlier considered and we sort of threw out for the same for what we've the reasons we've already discussed. Mm-hmm. I think LCM was another thing that was in that same vein, which is out of MIT. It's what they used for their infrastructure from when they were doing their first challenge cars, basically. And again, it being an open source open project, source, yeah. it also didn't sort of meet that criteria. And we were looking for something that we could standardize on across the company. So both on the self-driving side as well as the maritime side. And you know, the maritime side has different challenges and in that Basically, if you have uh, an autonomous vehicle in that space, if it's kind of moving in the open water, maybe, maybe you're not concerned about it hitting something like you would be with a car, but you are concerned about losing it. Um, <laughs> these are expensive assets and, and having them disappear into an ocean is not really good <laughs> or getting damaged and you know not being controllable and not being recoverable yeah. are all issues. So, mm-hmm. And like I said, being small and trying to standardize something that could support both use cases or that if you guys had your staff having to come up to speed on right so that you could have people that could cross projects and that once you put that time investment into learning the technology that you guys were good to go right that can be hard to find so you considered Ross and then it was Ross LCM LCM that was it and um, just our own homegrown solution and then how did you find Connects DDS when we were looking at DDS I remember us like messing around a little bit with OpenDDS mm-hmm. um, just to get a, a sense of it. I think we looked at who were the biggest players in uh, DDS implementations and in the OMG consortium, I guess is what it would be. And so RTI was on that list, and I think that's how we established this relationship. And that was about a year and a half, two years? Year Probably close ago? to two years ago at this point, I would say. Yeah. I think we started talking around then. Can we talk about why Connect DDS was important as like an architectural decision for you. Because I always think of architecture and my mentor once told me this, he goes, architecture in any sense is it's strategic design, right? It's do all these right things at your most base level so that you are given the opportunity, not the guarantee though, right? That you can realize that potential and realize that end state that you had and the end state that you guys are trying to achieve here with these types of systems is not something that you accidentally stumble upon so so i feel like going after architecture in the proper way for you guys was a must what did this bring to that for you our software is structured as lots of basically independent modules that have specific tasks that way they can be compartmentalized and independently developed and verified and unit tested and all the things that go along with that. Yeah. Um, having those software modules then run a system together required some architecture where they could all communicate. We have computation that spans processing units. So as you start to say, I'm adding more units, ideally you'd have some form of seamless communication Whereas software modules move around computing resources, it's not like you have to make a rewrite of how everything works. And also there's a lot of variability in the data that passes between modules and the constraints that they each have. For example, uh, input sensor data is usually very high bandwidth. Everything in the system needs to be low latency. But if I 
miss a frame of something, I usually just want the, the most recent frame. And I can suffer with some issues with that data stream coming in because I can be tolerant when I, with multiple sensors and processing algorithms. As I send, especially like one shot messages around the system, I, you know, I might say, oh, we're gonna change modes or a state machine change somewhere. And I want mm -hmm. that to be conveyed to everything. I need to have some guarantee that that message right. is gonna get there and that everything is going to be able to react to it and it can't get lost in transit. <laughs> this uh, one cannot be dropped. Right. Yeah. And then you have some low bandwidth signals, which are on the control side, that there isn't a lot of information that is being passed in them, but they're mission critical because they're, they're now coupling with how the vehicle is actually moving. And so you have low bandwidth, needs to be extremely low latency, and you can't really have suffer any, any loss there. So given that you have to manage all of these different types of information moving through the system, and you need to balance your resources appropriately, where if for whatever reason I had to sacrifice a frame of sensor data to make sure that my control signals are going out and my one shots are making it where they need to be, that's how it should behave. And you need to have the flexibility to push that through in the system. And quality of service settings let you do that. Exactly. <laughs> you get to actually go through and fine tune the behaviors. Right. So that you get the behaviors you need. Yes. That is a unique feature. Yes. All right. Have you used any of our other software services? So I know that you guys, you've tried Micro before. It What you guys needed was available in Pro, and now you're using Pro. Mm -hmm. um, have you used like Record Replay, Routing Service? We've played with it, Record and Replay. We haven't really used it extensively. Um, I think Routing Service, we haven't done anything with it, but we're talking about connected vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, I think that would probably come in more into play at that point. So yeah. we're not there yet. Okay. How does Connect support your AI applications? Well, so I would say, first of all, whenever we're talking about like AI, it's a super nebulous term. I know. And so <laughs> it, it, it's just so unbounded as to what, what it means. In the, the movement that you're seeing is just one where you're applying you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence to more and more complex problems. And as you apply things to more complex problems, that means you have complex hardware infrastructure and now more processes have to talk to each other. And so rather than it being like a AI or machine learning dovetails with, with DDS, it's more that they both fit into the same set of tools that you'd use to solve complex problems. Right. Just for context, I mean, if you were running like a neural network that were just going to like highlight objects on this table, like where would DDS fit into that, right? Like it's not like you would need DDS to, no. to do that. Right. So it, it's not really in these, that they specifically tie together. It's just that, you know, way the world is going. All right. So I understand you're combining traditional machine learning algorithms and artificial intelligence using deep learning. Can you share some of the advantages of this approach? Yeah, so I would say that we are combining traditional approaches in terms of planning and control and perception with artificial intelligence, deep learning. Machine learning is a hot topic right now, and it shows a lot of promise. Uh, the way that it essentially works is you are providing this black box, uh, a set of inputs and outputs that you want, and it is trying to find a way to regress that. So 
it's creating an internal model that it thinks will represent what you want from giving a set of input to what you want it to output. Um, and so that's a pretty powerful tool when you don't actually have to create the model on the inside in terms of if this were you know, something really trivial, you might say, oh, I'm going to do, I can see that I have some data and I want to do a linear fit to it. And so I, 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 but I know ahead of time what a line is and I can see that my data kind of matches a line and I mm -hmm. can draw the line. Here, we're, we're generalizing that to the point where it doesn't know what anything needs to look like. And so it can create what it needs to model the appropriate resulting action. Exactly. So that you get the, the results that align with what you're looking for. But um, how it gets there. And the how that it, right. Up it, to. Yeah. It, it, to figure out. Exactly. And, and also your um, ability to inspect to understand what it really does is also limited, at least based on what people are able to do today. There are academics that are trying to peel back those layers and understand more of how uh, the machine learning ends up working. But unless there's some major shift in that department, what you lack is any way to predict what the behavior is gonna be when, it's, when it encounters something that it's never seen before. And they can be fairly mundane things because it's all tied to how the model was created. So you could just have some odd confluence of events and have a neural network behave completely erratically. But it's totally logical if you look at what it was operating on before and what its right. model was, right? <laughs> and so the ability to cleanly predict what will happen means it just becomes like this game of exposure. We talked earlier about exposure and talking about, you know, if you try really, really hard over many years, you can get up to, you know, a few million miles of exposure. Mm -hmm. And then you still have to like put that through the system. You still have to have all the computation to process millions of miles of exposure. Right. And on the flip side, you're going to put this out into the world and it's going to get a billion miles right off the bat. So when you talk about it from that perspective, you have to be somewhat guarded about what the machine learning algorithms are going to do. If I have some model in some aspect of a system that I could represent through physical equations. Mm -hmm. If I weren't saying I want to put together something that represents basically the, the dynamics of the vehicle, I could go and, and run a bunch of simulations and have a machine learning algorithm regress that, mm -hmm. or I could try to do it analytically. And when I do it analytically, I have a better sense of the understanding of its boundaries, which means I, I span a space that is well-defined. And I know that if I leave this space, it won't be well-defined and I can guard against that. I don't understand the boundaries of the machine learning aside from the fact of where did I train it. So it's predictability, it's hard to create a bound on. Because it's a deploy. function of its exposure. Right. And that's hard to put that point on. Yes. So, I mean, if we go back to our earlier example where we talk about a line, if I have a set of data over a limited range and I fit a line to it, everything might match really well. Mm -hmm. But if I fit like a higher order polynomial to it, I might still have something that looks just like a line in that range. Right. And it might go completely <laughs> erratic outside of that right. range. And when that isn't just a smooth space, when you have all these little holes and you have all these corners that you have to push into, then how tractable is that? That becomes an issue where when you say I'm going to scale the way that we're talking about scaling, that you want to guard against that. And so having a blend of traditional and machine learning algorithms allows you to have the, there be safeguards. It allows you to encapsulate exactly what the responsibilities of each subsystem are. So you could say the neural network is responsible for, for just this. And therefore I have some sense of what ways it could be wrong and make sure that there's something else in the system that can ensure that 
it, it, it can cover. That's a common thread in a lot of things you've worked on. <laughs> <laughs> Needing to be very knowledgeable about two types of things in order to kind of create a hybrid solution, right. I guess. Do you want to predict the future? <laughs> sure. Oh, you do? I love this. This is great. So what do you think the future is going to look like for autonomous vehicles and the things that you're working on right now? You said it's half a percent of cars operating like this would be high. Uh, I, I don't know that it would be high. I mean, I, I was using it as an example of just something of um, even in like your very conservative case of scaling, like what your exposure would look like. Okay. Um, exactly how fast things will roll out, I think, is, is uh, TBD. Um, I would say that I don't think it'll be as clear cut as people are expecting. I think that we already have autonomy that's encroaching. If you look at something like a smartphone, I mean, they were kind of like dabbling around in the uh, the Palm Trio and the Blackberry days. I and, one of those. and then you have an iPhone come out mm -hmm. and then it starts to become very mainstream. And I mean, iPhone came out 10 years ago and it, you'd be loath to find somebody who doesn't have a smartphone today. Um, but it wasn't like there was some time when we were like, computing is now pushed into everybody's hands. Like that wasn't like a clear line, Right. but it happened in a manner where, you know, it's all there and we don't usually stop to reflect and on it. And now we don't even question it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think the same thing is what you're going to see in, in this space. As you're looking at autonomous vehicles from the retail channel, you're just going to start seeing more of the driving burden removed from the driver. You're still going to be- And people being comfortable with that. Right. Which I think is an entirely different obstacle. I mean, right? I, I remember- Take your hands <laughs> off the wheel. <laughs> It's a funny thing. I mean, I remember when uh, hybrids first came out and people were very unsettled with the fact that the car turned but, off yeah. and it was silent in the car and that they had that trust that when they hit the gas that the car was going to turn back on and you were going to go. But I think they will become comfortable with it as yeah. they start seeing the convenience of it. We have had active safety out there to the point where it's becoming mainstream and commodity with systems that have more and more capability increasing over time. You're, and it uh, hasn't increased the price of the car, by the way, in some of those measures I've noticed. So like... It got into my car without adding any additional cost, and it wasn't a feature that I was seeking out. Right. It was just, oh, it also comes with this. So the fact that you can bolt these things, you know, onto a car essentially and have these additional features that people are going to get comfortable with without increasing the price, I think, will help with adoption. Yes, and I mean, I would say that there are levels of capability. So you have levels of autonomy. Right. right. And, and exactly what that means. So I think you're starting to see, you know, mainstream vehicles are starting to have adaptive cruise control, for example. Mm -hmm. Adaptive cruise control, I think, has been around in like the luxury vehicles for a like, very long time. So maybe like 15 years or something. As it's starting to push down into the mainstream and people get more exposure to it, they'll become more comfortable with it. If you watch the, what the high end is doing today in, in comparison, you started to see five to seven years ago, that adaptive cruise control uh, very quietly became a full speed range adaptive cruise where it can take you down to a stop. It used to have some minimum speed that could operate it. And that meant now you could actually drive into a traffic jam and the car could, you know, stop and you could be in bumper to bumper and it would just say, we, do we want to go? Do we want to go? And it, you'll, it'll just keep going for you and it'll stop where it needs to. So if you think of just what the driving burden during a traffic jam is, it's like excruciating. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... Humans are far more capable than any of these systems at handling these tasks, but they're also extremely mundane for us. And so all the accidents happen because we let them. And these systems are 
basically going to mature to the point where like, oh, I don't want to do this. So the car is going to do it. And there's going to be some value add there. And that I think that's, we're just have this erosion. And especially as you look at like easier problems, the highway setting, you're starting to see, mm -hmm. um, you know, Tesla has their autopilot system. I think yeah. Mercedes has systems out. Mm -hmm. GM just launched Super Cruise, which is their first sort of hands-free system for driving on a highway. So what does hands-free on a highway mean? So at least the tagline that GM has been pushing is that all of their competitors in terms of highway autonomy require that your hands are on the wheel or that you constantly touch the wheel so that they know that you're paying attention. What right. GM has done is they've put in a, a driver awareness system. They actually track your eye movements. So they look to see that you're looking out the window. And if you look away for a period of time, they start to escalate to say you have to get back involved in some form. Um, and then they, they'll eventually like slow down the car and whatnot. What that means is that you can actually take your hands off the wheel. And the, the <laughs> fact that you have to hold the wheel, it doesn't become an element anymore. And that means that as you're driving, if you like glance at different things, like as long as you don't exceed their time windows, tolerances, right? you can, it's starting to relieve the burden. Huh. As you look at these systems and they mature, you're going to say, here you're talking about staying in a lane and driving on the highway. What happens when I drive on the highway for a long distance? Well, maybe it will change lanes for me at some point. Maybe it'll, which uh, I think some people have tried in, in some small scope, but you say, okay, it's going to do automatic lane change. Now I put in my nav system and I say, I want to go from A to B and the highway portion of that, including lane changes as you have divides and whatnot is covered for you. And you say, okay, well now I want to push into ramps and then I want to push into surface. And then it's just going to slowly cover more aspects. of. And all of those future speed. ones will actually probably be smoother because of what was learned right, and achieved leading up to it. Exactly. You will also get a sense for more of the corner cases, right? These systems will be in the field and you'll get some near misses that will become more critical if you have a more capable system. But you have data on that now that yeah. you can start incorporating prior to it rolling out as a, as a major production system. So that line is, I think, going to sneak up on people. You're just gonna, it's just gonna become a normal part of your life in a way that you don't quite think about. It'll be like some novelty to start with, but then it's just gonna be what you use every day. So I think from the retail side, that that's the channel that you're gonna see. I think on the fleet side, most likely they're going to have to start small in terms of where they can deploy. So they're gonna be in specific guarded areas. And so maybe there'll be automated shuttle routes someplace, right? They may have their own lane to isolate something to Were begin they have with. Like the campus fleets. Right, yeah. or like closed campus, corporate mm -hmm. campus just moving vehicle, moving people around in some automated way. We see that with sort of hard infrastructure where you see like automated trams and automated yeah. rail. So it's automating the stop and go and then the rail keeps it steering. You're adding the steering element into it and you can start to take away some of the environmental safeguards that you were, you were placing around these things. But if at some point you get into a, a tram at some airport or something that's automated, you know, people don't even like bat an eye now. At, and yet somebody had to make something that could automatically, without having a driver, move people around. And, and, and not be a danger to everyone getting on and off it. Right. You, don't, you also <laughs> don't hear about them failing in some dramatic way. And so I think the same thing will happen with the fleet autonomy as well. So as the technology matures, I think you're just going to see that it, it kind of slowly crawls into different aspects of your life. And I don't see it being a sort of dramatic switch. And I think a lot of that is also stemming from the fact that everything is tied to some physical infrastructure. 
Um, if we were going to have a dramatic switch in the way everything operated, then we would have to change the way all the roads are structured and what all the signals look like. And, and just the cost of that means that I don't see it happening very easily. And so that having a sort of organic, almost grassroots buildup of the technology is, is more likely to be where it comes from. So I think that I think they're normalizing aspects of it in that way. Yeah. Because like we're hearing about it and right. it's available to the general consumer. Yes. But we have not all experienced it. Right. So I feel like that lowers the boundary though a tiny bit at that point. Okay, here's one. They want to know if you guys here are involved in any industry organizations or consortia. So that could mean anything from like participation with, you know, development of like the raw standard or something along that line or anything public that you guys actively participate in so, or contribute towards somehow? So I would say basically that we, um, our primary contribution in that realm has been more in, given that self-driving space is evolving, that there are some local groups that um, are trying to create a consortia between industry and academia. So we'll go to working group meetings there. Department of Transportation Massachusetts has a working group that they right. have to try to address how policy regulation, how they want to register, license, hmm. all of the, how do they want to ensure everything around. Um, it's an interesting point. <laughs> I forgot about that. We have to ensure though. <laughs> yeah. So they have basically uh, an open meeting every couple of months that we'll at least attend and maybe we'll contribute something to in terms of questions or suggestions. So I think from me personally and what we're doing in the AV space, that's what our contribution is. And, and really it's around saying that especially um, lawmakers and policy analysts have to find a way to cover this new space in a way that the area still stays competitive. You're not like cutting off innovation, but you don't want to risk public safety. So there's a balancing act there. And you don't want to be in a situation where something goes wrong and there were no regulations in place. And now there's like a steep back pedal right. where you're like clamping down. And they're and, like, forget this. Exactly. No to all things you're doing. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the things that makes it, I would say, favorable for industry is to have some sense of stability. So as you try to have the governmental organizations be coupled to industry organizations, it makes it so that you can say, frankly, that there are going to be things that go wrong as time goes on, right? And if people are ready for it, then it's sort of a, a joint... Um, Ownership of the wrong? Right. <laughs> now, you know that something's going to happen at some point. Right. We're not going to have like a knee-jerk reaction to it. We're going to talk to the public in a way that, you know, is going to say that this is isolated, these things will happen, right. and we're ready to... But when the policymakers are working in hand with the technologists... It's not finger pointing and exactly. one isn't lagging terribly behind the other. So right. you're able to actually address yes. those concerns in, in ways that don't damage what you're trying to achieve right. or hinder it from and progressing. So the problem is also broken across like it's federal, it's state, it's local, who wants to handle what aspect of it. And there's been a somewhat of a gravitation towards this Wild West approach. States that do nothing, have no permitting, no regulation, no oversight. That's where right. you want to be. Um, but as soon as something goes wrong, you might have, as a company, you might have built up infrastructure there, you might have staff there, and then suddenly that state can just flip on you, or that municipality could flip on you. And, and if, then your investment is... Exactly. Yeah. So if you feel like you need to be responsible and say, we're going to have policy and regulation that makes it so that 
everybody stays safe and there's a clear path forward, it also brings stability, right? You could go to a company and say, you're going to be able to operate here for 20 years while you develop this stuff because so, we're here to support it. And also, I mean, I would look at yeah. it as while you guys, and I know this from what you said earlier, you're swamped right now with work yes. <laughs> and demos and, you know, delivering things to customers. But at the same time, you have to invest your time in these other things that aren't product. Right. Because it's potentially just as important <laughs> to what you're trying to achieve as the actual technology. If they won't let you use it. Right. And on a different side of that same coin is supporting smaller companies. We're a smaller company. How many people? Uh, we're at about 35 people right now. When we go and say that we want to operate within a certain location and you're talking about vehicles, that means you need to have all this infrastructure in place as well. You need to have offices that are co-located or reasonably close to garage space. You need to be able to have that reasonably close to wherever you're allowed to test. If something goes wrong, like what are the procedures? You're, you're gonna have like a, if there's an accident, local cops gonna show up. What happens, right? That's the like, protocol. Yeah, exactly. How does, <laughs> how do you, you know, deal with all those things? And if you have a, a place that has very heavy handed regulation, now you need to have like a, a lawyer on hand, you need to go through a legal process to get. So basically this sort of work, as much as the small companies can be agile, just all the infrastructure requirements favor larger companies. And so if you want to have something that is a very innovative space, it kind of needs to be incubated by the government in some form. Otherwise, it's all going to tend towards large companies, and then they're going to set the pace of innovation. Is that actually one of the reasons that you partner with larger companies? Is that part of like a model for being successful in these areas, do you think? Is there a huge advantage to that? I would you say, work with large companies yes. that we cannot talk about. Correct. Yeah. Our model is to basically create strategic partnerships with larger companies. Okay. It's something that is new to them as much as we're a new organization. So it's something that we have to keep trying to navigate through. But the idea is to have a best of both worlds type of approach where you can have a small, nimble team but backed by the resources of a larger organization. There's the financial, there's the facilities. If you look at what a major automotive OEM or supplier has in terms of testing facilities, there'll be like yeah. billions of dollars of investment. That when, you could never replicate. Exactly. Yeah. And so you have access to those facilities. Um, if you look at how a lot of autonomous vehicle companies integrate into a vehicle, it's very sort of hacked on in many ways. They're, they've tried to reverse engineer interfaces to different aspects so that they can control it because it was never meant to be controlled in that manner. Yeah, it's meant to be driven by a person. Right. If you partner with a larger company that has some connectivity there, some ownership of those pieces, then now you can actually have proper interfaces because they can go and start tweaking and changing things to make it suitable for your, your task. So the inside of the car doesn't look like, you know, a hacked up job of the wires right. everywhere and all exactly. the panels removed. <laughs> and if you look at what test vehicles look like coming out of suppliers and OEMs in general, just as part of their normal development, not even for AVs, right. they're extremely polished compared to what you'd see other places. So we talked about the fact that you're hard to find online, but you guys are having a website that by the time this podcast <laughs> goes live should be up. Yep. So... Um, do you know what that URL will be? Yeah, it could be nextroad.com or nextroidsystems.com. Okay, so the last question here is, what happens next for Nextroid? I would say that the technology for robotics and automation is broadly applicable. 
we are targeting some spaces right now that can make use of it today, but the where that can be applied is just going to expand over time. And so you could imagine if I have some perception algorithm for a car, well, how would that apply to a UAV? How would that apply to even something just like a security system? Yeah. And so <laughs> we are setting ourselves up such that we can contribute to lots of industries. And as time goes on, I think you'll see that you know uh, the types of vehicles that we can build or apply the technology to will expand, will move into more aspects of robotics like manipulation-based systems and other challenging areas along those lines. Sounds like something you'd be into. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to episode 16 of the Connects podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for part two of Dan's interview, where he goes into detail about safety in autonomous vehicles, as well as early projects he's worked on. If you have any questions or suggestions for future interviews, please be sure to reach out to us on social media or podcast at rti.com. Thanks, and have a great day.